Welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Dr. Joni Cannell shares communication strategies for technical people. She shares her own stories of learning to communicate and brings in other nerds and experts to show you how to interact with people in a way that's comfortable for you. And now, here's your host, the uniquely qualified engineer-turned-psychologist, Dr. Joni Cannell. Hello and welcome to Reinventing Nerds. Today we have somewhat of a legal nerd, you might say. His name is Will Marshall, and he is a co-founder and partner of UBM Law Group. He drafts and negotiates commercial contracts, including SaaS and traditional software licensing agreements. And he takes care of all sorts of legal things that come up for businesses, small and large. He's also especially knowledgeable, however, uh, and issues that come up with small businesses for you, a small business people who are listening in today. Um, he was a founding executive at Javo Beverage Company, uh, where he was integral in leading the ground up capitalization and commercialization of the company over the course of a decade. So he really knows those kind of things that come up. Let's welcome Will Marshall. Hi, Will. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, Joni. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it's great to have you here. It's not often we get lawyers on the show, so uh, this is exciting. I bet. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we have to like, put a disclosure at the beginning here, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. I, I, I often say, you know, think of your most interesting topic, and then I can tell you the boring legal aspects of that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it touches on everything, so uh, hopefully I can, I can make this interesting. Uh, oh, good. Uh, well, uh, I'm sure you will. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I mean, I gave a little bio here of you, but like tell us sort of in, in sort of natural English here what you do um, and sort of how you came into this tech space. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, I had a little bit of an, uh, of an unusual legal career in that I started my career as general counsel of a company uh, that I co-founded and, and so I did the whole startup thing. Uh, and then I went into private practice for the, the, the last 10 years or so. Uh, usually it's the reverse. Usually you work in a law firm and then you go in-house. Um, and so that's important because uh, I learned to be a lawyer in a business context of, of limited resources, trying to grow all of that so it kind of informs how I practice law. But I, but I did that at the company co-founded a, a law firm. There are six of us. And uh, even though uh, my company was, it was a technology-based manufacturer, it wasn't a pure tech company, uh, for whatever reason, I seemed to uh, gravitate towards or attract tech companies when I started my practice, uh, software as a service, uh, software licensing, that type of thing. And I don't, I can't really say why that that went that way. I, I, I maybe I just liked that type of work, or maybe I did a good job of it. I'm not sure. Okay, I love it. I love it. You're not having like this whole spiel that's all rehearsed about you had this great uh, <laughs> thing here, but it just happened. Sometimes yep. that's life. I think that's so good for people to understand that too, because I mean, especially the younger folks who are listening, they're always you know thinking they have to have it all planned out. And yes. Not necessarily so. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Uh huh. Well, you know, you work with a lot of technical people when you deal with the tech space here, and um, you know, what kind of 
issues or concerns typically come up from them in dealing with lawyers? Sure, sure. So uh, uh, sometimes it's them coming to me and sometimes it's me coming to them. Uh, it runs the gamut. Uh, it can be sort of pure technical matters like negotiating a, a, an agreement that's uh, to provide technical services. It could be dealing with employee issues. It could be dealing with raising money and sort of startup type of issues. It could be implementing policies, compliance. There's a whole whole slew of things where I might be interfacing with technical people. So uh, sometimes that technical person is the founder and is an executive. So they have a broad sort of um, view of all the, the legal issues that we need to talk about. And sometimes they're more of a junior technical person where we're just hammering out really, really technical issues, uh, uh, practical and granular issues, those types of things. Okay, so it's been my experience where people aren't necessarily eager to go call a lawyer to get them involved, and mostly because of the costs, right? But, um, you know, what kind of hesitations uh, come up for them? You know, what kind of concerns do they have, like, about actually, um, yeah, the law? Sure, sure. Uh, well, f- first of all, there's, there's the cost, uh, that you, the, as you say, and, and the costs when you're billing on an hourly basis can run up, particularly if you don't know how to manage your lawyer and, oh. and, and, and use them efficiently and, and that type of thing. Uh, so that's, that's one, and, and that's really about building trust uh, as I said, I, I cut my teeth as a co-founder, uh, paying outside lawyers as well and seeing their invoices and knowing what aggravated me about them and <laughs> those types of things. So, um, so a key part in my customer relationships is building the trust that I'm as worried about their dollars almost as much as they are. Oh, and that I'm not going to suggest that they burn up all the profit on a deal having me you know, uh, make the perfect contract if it, if it wipes out the profitability of the deal. Uh, so that kind of sensitivity to resources is really important in building that trust. Um, that has to start from the, the, the front line. The other things that are challenging is law it can be very confusing. It can be very um, not, not sort of jive with common sense. Um, and then the other thing is uh, lawyers can, you know, when they're not doing their job right, they can be the sort of the sales prevention unit or the doctor no, or you can't do that or bogging down the system, the sales person, oh, this is going to go to legal. Oh no, it's, it's down a black hole and we're never going to get this deal done. And so um, when you're talking about startups, that's sort of, you know, they're, they have their foot on the gas. Anything that sort of stops them is, is terrible. Um, and in a more mature company, it's more in the form of, in terms of tech people, it's sort of, uh, oh, you know, you're going to make me do, do this thing that, you know, I don't want to do or that's challenging for me from a technical standpoint. So, um, you know, that's, that's when you get people who, um, who just say, oh, you've negotiated this SLA that's different from all my other SLAs and now I have to track that and I hate you for that. Ah, <laughs> you know, so do you find that they avoid getting in touch with you because of that or and not you like just the lawyers because they they don't want to have to deal with this? I think that um what happens sometimes is is in the startup context they're contacting me because they need absolutely need something. They need to raise money or they need to um uh, uh 
implement a, an equity comp plan or something like that. So, so they're, they're driving that. Um, in a ma more mature company, they are more accustomed to lawyers being around and looking at more things. Um, but if you're talking about a, a, a more junior tech person, they're not coming to me. I'm coming to them and okay. saying, tell me about this, what you're doing with your uh, personal information. I have to drive up, draft a privacy policy or something right. like that. And so I'm chasing them down uh, and then uh, trying to convince them to be comfortable with me and to share what they know. Okay, so you said a little bit about what their concerns might be. What are your concerns as a lawyer, you know, when you're dealing with technical people and organizations? Well, they come in, in, in some uh, a couple flavors. Sometimes you'll be dealing with, a, say, a biotech company, and you've got a, a PhD or, a, or an engineer or something like that, and they can suffer from the, uh, the, the, the trap of, hey, I'm a smart person, Therefore, I can draft a contract. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and we're all sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, prone to doing that sometimes, but, but they'll, try to, they'll try to draft the contract or, or make assumptions about what needs to happen that are false and instead of just sort of having a dialogue and collaborating. So that can be a challenge with technical people. Um, I respect their, their craft and what they do. And they should sort of uh, have some appreciation that what I'm doing is a, is, a, is a kind of a skill, a learned skill, and it has its own ins and outs. And you can't just necessarily um, understand every aspect of it or do it, but we're each trying to understand each other's space. Um, mm -hmm. So. Yeah, this sounds like exactly the kind of things that we talk about on the show, like the communication skills. So you're talking about you have two different domains of expertise and you have to have some appreciation, but also uh, being able to communicate and bridge that gap between the two types of language. I mean, you said earlier that, you know, the law doesn't always seem like it, it makes sense sort of common sense, you know, tell us more about, you know, I call it the legalese, right? You know, yeah. what, what kind of things that come up and how do you help people understand uh, why it's different or that they, that they really need to um, just sort of let it go because it is different and it doesn't have this logical sort of sense to it that they're used to. How do you deal with that? Sure. That, that's, that's a, a critical point. And, and sometimes it's because, they um, they don't appreciate the risk of 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 sort of going against the advice because it's a distant risk. Oh, that's never going to come up, or you know uh, that's not going to come up immediately, or I don't understand how that's going to come up, so I'm just going to kind of ignore it. Um, some things like managing your IP at the startup phase uh, may not bite you right then, but when you go to sell the company is a major problem and a hit to the valuation. So sometimes the risk's not in front of them, they, they don't appreciate it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it is what you said, legalese. Um, it, it's sort of, and that's more in the contract drafting uh, uh, scenario, but legalese can be archaisms like whereas and <laughs> That stuff, <laughs> witnesseth, uh, those things just need to go away. And so if, if your lawyer's saying witnesseth in the contract, you need a new lawyer, I think. Um, oh, good, good note to self there. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, or, or they're being, you know, anyway, they're being lazy maybe, or, or maybe they think that's important. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but the other part of it is, is a little bit harder to appreciate uh, or is not as obvious. 
uh, uh, contract language has to be um, precise to a level of, of, of precision that's uncommon and certainly not, uh, not like what happens when we talk to one another. Okay. But when you and I talk, we might say sentences or phrases that are 10 ways ambiguous. Uh, you know, a linguist could sit there and parse them and say, well, right. that, that can mean this or that. Uh, and nobody cares because we all know what each other means 99.9% .9 of the time. Right. Uh, but in a contract, you don't have the luxury of having that. Uh, you, you, the budget for drafting the contract will never be as big as the budget for ripping it apart in litigation. Oh. Yeah. Rarely. And, and so you'll have lawyers looking for an alternative meaning even if it doesn't quite make sense, or they'll be looking for an interpretation they want. And so it's okay to be vague, strategically vague in a contract, but it's not okay to be ambiguous. And ambiguous means there's two uh, equally reasonable meanings or three or more equally reasonable meanings of the same language. And so that's why the language winds up often being a little bit stilted or a lot stilted and, and, and hard to read. And, um, and so a tech person having an appreciation for that, understanding the nuances of language, um, sometimes simple things like there's a big, big difference between saying the software shall not have viruses and saying I commit to using antivirus software, right? So uh, things like that, you know, that, that, that are, it's, it's not a linguistic thing, but it's a, it's a, it's a way to frame an obligation that's that's very different and so just having a sense of the appreciation for that that's part of the craft and helping your lawyer do a better job of that expressing your concerns where is it all going to go wrong those types of things so the lawyer can massage that language and and get you a good result that's really nice. critical yeah wow i just love the vague versus ambiguous and that's something that i've never heard before and it makes a lot of sense when you describe that Sure, if I'm negotiating against a Fortune 100 company and there's a lurking issue there, I might just want to be silent on it because I know that if I turn over that rock, it's going to get negotiated in a way that I'm not going to like because mm -hmm. they have the negotiating leverage. So we'll just kind of whistle past that and <laughs> deal with it later. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure budget constraints really affect how you approach things. I mean, let's talk about startups for a moment here. You know, what kind of issues come up for, you know, smaller uh, organizations with those smaller budgets? Sure, sure. Uh, it, it's really tough in, in a startup because you have uh, a million things you have to do and very little resources and very little time and money to get it done. So every moment is an exercise in saying, should I be doing what I'm doing right now? And should I be spending this dollar on this versus that? Everything's an opportunity cost. And so, as I was saying earlier, oftentimes it's just, what do I need to, 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 to move the ball down the field a little bit further? I need to raise money, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need to get these stock options to this person. Um, and so that's what happens and what what's missed is, uh, like I said, the, some of the other things that, that, that may not seem like they get the ball down the, the, the court, but they're critical to your long-term success. And IP ownership is an example of that. So if you don't make sure that the, all the software developers who help you on your startup assign that code into your, into your company uh, properly, then you don't own your IP. 
and that's not going to be a, that's not going to stop you from going and getting customers or growing the business. It's just going to be a major hiccup when you when you get down the road. Or if you just um, sell shares or give shares out to somebody and you don't think about securities laws, um, then when you go to sell the company to a venture capitalist or or whatever, or take their investment, and they want to know, hey, did you dot your eyes on all these things? Oh, you didn't. Okay, well that's a problem. And then it hits you at that point and it's too late. So some things it's acceptable to take risk and just say we don't have the resources to 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 have a you know every, dot every eye. Uh, but you gotta figure out which ones really matter and make sure you squeeze out the resources to, to cover those uh, as best you can. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I can tell you as a small business owner that yeah, it's easy to get sloppy because it doesn't matter. Oh, we're just, mm-hmm. you know, there's not that many people involved. What's the big deal? But I think the one of the big issues as is you're talking about is if you're planning to grow, then it can really make a big difference, especially when you get others involved and um, in various ways, either competitors sure. or investors or, or uh, yeah. Yeah, here in California, a, a big one that, that people can be asleep at the wheel on is, is employment practices. Mm-hmm. It's probably the number one risk of exposure is, um, you know, HR practices and getting sued uh, by an employee. Um, it really helps if you respect your employees and treat them well, needless to say. Happy employees don't tend to sue. Yeah. So that's your number one line of defense. But uh, you got to try to to cover the bases as best you can because um, that's another lurking risk. It's not a it's not a risk until it blows up in your in your face and and you realize you haven't done what you were supposed to. Yeah. Particularly uh-huh. in California. Yeah. Well, yeah, we have pretty strict uh, employment laws here. I actually know several folks, even in smaller businesses, who have had to contend with that. That's a big. It could be a big impact. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So you talk also about some of the larger organizations. What comes up that's different in terms of like the technical people there and the issues that you deal with? So in a bigger organization, like I said, you can have more. Um, appreciation for the role of an attorney or legal um, and uh, it it becomes more about um, stakeholders and fiefdoms and uh, uh, sometimes the attorney can be the sort of the person wandering from department to to department trying to pull together these strings and these threads and get a consensus on something. And so I talk to the technical folks and I talk to finance and accounting and I talk to the, the salespeople, and I'm trying to pull together this contract that, that touches on all those domains, and each, each stakeholder is worried about their, um, their, own, their own fiefdom. The salesperson wants it closed, the deal closed by quarter end, and the finance person doesn't want headaches, and the tech person doesn't want headaches, and, and, and the salesperson just wants to get it done. And so, um, you know, and maybe the CEO just wants to get it done. Right. So you're uh, sort of a mediator, it almost seems like. And correct. yeah, hmm. correct. You're, you're, you're mediating against uh, all that. Um, but, uh, you know, you, you have, um, sometimes you have more sophisticated management who can sort of um, understand the components of an agreement, the risks. And that makes it easier for me because 
Um, I'm not explaining what an indemnity clause is to them or a limitation on liability cap or some of these sort of fundamental contract provisions uh, because I don't want to be making the decisions for them. And that's sort of more of an outside counsel concern. Uh, I need to educate them and let them make the decisions on risk. I advise on risk uh, and they, they decide. And now obviously there are a million little um, edits in a contract I may be, may be making that I'm just effectively deciding, I'm saying do this. But when it comes to the big ticket exposure, the client needs to decide and that's a little bit easier in a, in a larger organization where they're familiar with that type of thing uh, than, than sometimes in smaller startups. Okay. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You would think that people would be a little bit more specialized and have some knowledge in some of these areas have, with their experience in these larger contexts sure. rather than just starting out and really being focused on the technology probably. Yeah, the product, the product, the product. And, and that's in contrast to uh, in-house counsel. Uh, so in-house counsel, when I was general counsel, I, I was much more involved in, in sort of making broad risk decisions for the company and saying, this is our stance on these types of things, working in conjunction with the other executives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's a different role because you're, you're not sort of um, putting it on the, the client as much to, to make decisions. You're, you're sort of broadly setting the tone in a lot of respects. Well, if you could sort of tell us perhaps like your ideal uh, technical person and how they would communicate with you and what they would do to make your world easier. In other words, help that it be a more efficient relationship and everything because they don't want to spend a ton of money uh, dealing with these things. So what would be some of the characteristics that you would come up with or the skills that they would have to communicate with you to to make it the best, smoothest interaction possible? Number one is empathy. I, I don't think it, it, it's that different from when I was uh, running operations and managing people who reported to me. Um, I, I think about what I need to do as an attorney and uh, with a technical person, and a big part of that is empathy and understanding what they're up against, understanding their domain enough to appreciate how complex things can be, uh, technical people, uh, just like lawyers, don't like to be told um, sort of, here, just do this uh, without any sort of regard for the, the challenges of that. Uh, sometimes we get CEOs who will come up with a, 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 a compensation incentive scheme that, that, that is easy to say in a few sentences, but wildly complicated to draft. And so we want to understand that people appreciate the workload we have and what we're up against and our concerns. And so I try to do that with the tech people. Um, and, and, and the more they do that with me, the better the whole thing works. Um, a good example of that, it would be like a, a statement of work for technical services or an information security agreement where there's a lot of technical requirements and, and obligations mixed in with a lot of legal requirements. And so oftentimes I'll sit shoulder to shoulder with a CTO and go through it. And I'm saying, well, do we do this type of encryption? Or what does that mean to, to, to have this type of technical feature? And then they're explaining um, you know, what they do. And then I'm crafting the language around that. And we're collaborating and, and looking for compromises wherever we can. So just that sort of empathy 
and having a little bit of understanding of what the other person's, um, how they work and what they do goes a long way. I also heard uh, the collaborative approach to being willing to work with you to craft something uh, as opposed to just dictating it. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and and that's 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 anathema. That's the the worst approach is to to march in and say, uh, do this, or we need to do this from now on. Goodbye, you know that that, that, <laughs> that, that is all. That that doesn't work at all. You know, there's everything has complexities and nuance, and 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 you just have to to try to be willing to learn that and appreciate that. Uh, people just want to be heard, and they want to know that they're not um, either. Um, uh, being asked to do something that's way harder than they can do or being um, asked to do something and then feel like nobody's looking at it. They rush, rush, rush to deliver something. Mm -hmm. And then people say, thank you very much. And it sits on their desk for a month. Oh so yeah. Either of those, you know, so it's, it's much the same things that you see in any kind of workplace relationship. A lot of those same issues come up. Well, so here's the golden ticket question. So what are some traits that the technical people can look for in an outside lawyer, like an outside legal counsel? Well, I think that, um, I think that a, a tech person, um, having somebody with domain expertise, obviously, um, that can be important, not just because they appreciate the work and what you what the client does, but also because they because they might have market knowledge about what their competitors are doing. This is what sort of standard in the industry. This is a position that should be reasonable to push back on the on the customer. So that's really important. Um, somebody who has a wide angle lens. So working as general counsel and kind of growing up in a business context as a lawyer gave me a wider field of vision. So I see this little legal issue, but I know it's wrapped in this larger business decision. Okay. And that, that those business aspects can be just as important as everything else. Uh, sometimes I have a client and they have this terrible agreement and they say, will you review this? And I look at them and say, do you have to, do you have to sign this no matter what? And do you have any negotiating leverage whatsoever? And they say, I have to sign it and I have no negotiating leverage. And then I say, let's not spend a lot of money having me mark this up if it's just going to get punted back to us. Let's just do a shorter you know, review, a faster review, just to know what the landmines are in it. And then we'll sign it with eyes wide open. Right. Um, so, so, so that appreciation for the business elements and aspects swirling around the legal issue is really critical. And then uh, billing practices, because um, people fasten upon the hourly rate because it's an empirical number. They can, they can see that number and say, ah, you seem more expensive or less expensive than this other lawyer, what have you. But it's, it's, that's, that's a small part of the equation, relatively small, uh, compared to the billing practices. So in my practice, I try to replicate the experience of in-house counsel by... Um, by doing those things that in-house counsel would do. Uh, for example, trying not to punish the client for raising an issue. So if the client wow. says, hey, is this a problem? Should we be worried about this from a legal standpoint? Um, they don't want to get a, a you know, one-line email reply and a $200 invoice. <laughs> right. You know, that, that, that's, that's punishing them for raising an issue. And I don't want to do that. I want that communication. I want to incentivize that communication. So I, I bill accordingly and I'm sensitive to those types of things. And, I, uh, and that's, 
easier with long-term relationships uh, that I like to have with, with clients where in the wash, the, the, the time that I don't bill is, is meaningless uh, and, and, and just puts the client at ease. Mm-hmm. Would that come at all in the form of a retainer agreement or is that still billable or how does that typically work? I, 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 work, I work on an hourly basis. Some people work, uh, attorneys work on a flat fee, but that really only works for very um, defined uh, tasks like filing a trademark or forming a corporation or things like that where the, the scope of work is very known so that you don't wind up with a winner or a loser. When you have a fixed fee, you can easily wind up with, a, with, a, with somebody who's disproportionately the winner and the loser. If it takes no time at all, I might be the winner as the attorney, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it takes uh, a million hours, uh, I'm the loser. And mm-hmm. you don't want your attorney to be the loser because then they're doing the work unhappily. Any, any service provider right. who's not, you know, they have to kind of make what they make. Uh, and so be careful when you, when you, you know, grind your contractor or your attorney on fees because you might be the uh, disfavored project in there. <laughs> oh, it- that's great advice. Yeah. And I also love it. I mean, wow, you can tell that you really are into collaborating and building trust when you're talking about avoiding winners and losers. And you would think that in the legal context, people are like, yes, we want to win at all costs. So it's, it's really nice. I mean, you're, you're building the contracts and uh, the relationships rather than litigating. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's right. And, and I've negotiated with litigators on my side and it's always, uh, I don't, I don't want to say always, but often a disaster because they approach it from a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's really critical to that long-term relationship to sort of um, um, make sure they're happy and, and don't surprise them with invoices the quickest way for me to burn a relationship with a client is to surprise them with an invoice. And, uh, you know, that first invoice or any invoice, uh, they can say, oh, that's, that's, that's a large amount of money or it's not a large amount of money or, or whatever. But if they say, I feel burned or that just doesn't seem right yeah. or I, I, don't, I don't value that, uh, that's bad. And, and, and so... Um, Sometimes you get it wrong. You're hearing that they want to do build a build a palace, and what they really wanted was a mobile home, and so right. you can get your wires crossed there. But then you just have an open discussion to say, "Oh, well, I'll write. I'd rather write off time, yeah. quite frankly, and just get back to a good uh, situation than say, oh, sorry, pay the invoice because that's that's the last you'll ever hear from them. Right. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. So." You have to kind of, um, on an hourly basis, just communicate a lot. What's the budget? How are we doing? Are we on track? Is this going off the rails? Um, and, and adjust. Yeah. Well, communication's at the heart of the matter here, as it often is. So if uh, people want to get in touch with you after the show, what would be a good way for them to do that? The best way is email. Uh, my email is wmarshall at ubmlaw.com. That's Marshall with two L's. Uh, they can go to our website at ubmlaw.com, and my bio there has my uh, contact information and email and phone and all of that. Mm-hmm. Well, this has been extremely useful. I think people have gotten a lot about how to communicate with lawyers and what are some pitfalls to avoid. Um, and yeah, that there can be a win-win in this. You know, we don't <laughs> always see that in this kind of area, but it, it is 
that is the ideal here. So uh, thank you, Will, for being a guest on Reinventing Nerds. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks. And thanks to all our listeners. Uh, we're here at reinventingnerds.com. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And we'll see you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Reinventing Nerds and encourage you to apply what you learned to help you communicate better. For a free consultation with Joni to see how she can help you further, please visit ReinventingNerds.com. Until then, embrace your inner nerd and remain true to yourself while you develop your communication strategies.